You'll take your Bibles or find a Bible there in the pew and turn to the book of John. We are in a verse-by-verse study of this gospel, this incredible, incredible presentation of Christ. That's what this gospel is, as all the gospels are. But this one especially is an incredible presentation of Christ. I told you the first week we started looking at this in John chapter 20, we are told the very purpose why John wrote this letter and I wrote this gospel. Um, it has a uh, polemic side to it, meaning he is trying to prove something, namely that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God. We read that in John 20 at the, 21 at the end, but also that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So it's evangelistic as well, to prove something to us that Jesus is God and to evangelize us. That is the purpose of the book of John. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. This Jesus of Nazareth, uh, this is God in human flesh, and he comes that by believing in him, uh, you may have life in his name. He came out of eternity. God came out of eternity, became a man, took on flesh so he could die for our sin. So he could live perfectly righteousness, perfectly righteous, excuse me, law of God. He could live that out and satisfy God's demand for holiness. He could live that out for us as a man. And then he could die a death that we all deserve as a man. So this is very important to understand about Christ. He was not just a man. Uh, he was the God-man. We saw the previous section called the prologue, those first 18 verses of the book of John. That's prologue. That's where we saw in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We saw that the Word is deity. Then we saw in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. We saw humanity. The prologue just gives us incredible truths about who Christ is. But now as we come to verse 19 and following, all the way to the end of the book, it's all narrative. It's all narrative where John will take, uh, bring in people, uh, events and miracles, and even the words of Christ himself to prove his point, that Jesus is God, and that by believing in his name you may have life. Just keep that theme, keep that goal in mind. That's where John is headed. That's what John is seeking to do uh, on every page of this gospel, in every scene of this gospel. That is his very purpose. Today in verse 19, we meet John the Baptist. Understand when you read that in verse 19, the testimony of John, we're not talking about the writer of the book. The writer of the book never tells us his name. He always talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved or other things like that, but this is John the Baptist we're talking about. We're talking about uh, John the Baptizer, John the Immerser. It doesn't mean John was a Baptist. And John was certainly not a Presbyterian. When he baptized people, he put them down, held them down, and brought them back up. Uh, that was what he did, calling people to repentance. 
There is an incredible statement that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. It's kind of a, a verse that we all need to, to think about and maybe evaluate our own lives against. But 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Listen to what 6, 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? If you're a Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You are not your own. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, you have been redeemed. In fact, the next verse says, for you've been bought with a price. Your life belongs to Christ. He redeemed you. He bought you. He brought you to himself. Therefore, he says, glorify God in your body. And I would think if we look at John the Baptist this morning and in weeks to come, I would think you would have to say that he knew he was not his own. He knew that his life was not about John. He knew that his life was not about pleasing John or living for John. He knew that his life was about serving Christ, exalting Christ, making much of Christ. That's what you're going to see here. You're going to see here these truths about John the Baptist. This is incredible truth to evaluate our own lives up against. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. My life is not mine. And John was very effective because he lived that out. Turn to Luke 1 just for a moment. I want you just to meet and understand some background about John as we get into this. But he was born to um, some very righteous parents in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, his parents' names were Zacharias and Elizabeth. They are an older couple. They have no children. Uh, Elizabeth, we're told, was barren in her womb. Zacharias was a priest. Zacharias had gone into the temple to serve. It was his time to serve in the temple. And he was fulfilling his priestly duties in the temple. When we see verse 11, Luke 1 verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, to him Zacharias, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. Fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go, notice, as a forerunner before him, before Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to be a forerunner. He's going to be a herald of the Messiah. He's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Look at verse 80. And the child John continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
lived in the desert, and that's where we find his ministry as well. Turn to verse chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Luke does something here for us that's uh, typical of Luke. He gives us context, and that's why he starts out in verse 1. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. The brother was Philip, tetrarch of the region of... See all that? That's what's going on in the Roman world. That's what's happening in the Roman world. Then verse 2, and this is what's happening in the Jewish world. The high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John. Giving us a context, giving us a historical context of when the ministry of John the Baptist started. Historians would tell us that this is about A.D. 26, late A.D. 26, early A.D. 27. He's about 30 years old, would have been born around 0 A.D., if you can think in those terms. He was the son of a priest. Zacharias was his father. He was the son of a priest. He could have taken up that role as well, but he chose to go the role of a prophet. I know he's a, and the reason we know he's a prophet is because the word of God comes to him. Notice that in verse 2. The word of God comes to him. That's what a prophet is, one who speaks for God. This is the first time, folks. What's significant about this is from, from 900 to 400 B.C., You've got about 28 prophets foretelling and forthtelling the word of God. And all of a sudden, at 400 BC, all the way up until this point right here, God has been silent. One out of every 17 years, God has spoken a message to Israel. And now, all of a sudden, for 400 years, God has said nothing. And then John comes on the scene. An Old Testament prophet, John in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He appears on the scene calling people to repentance and to be baptized. The last prophet was Malachi. And that was 400 years before. And he's dressed like Elijah, we're told, the Old Testament prophet. We saw back in verse 6 of chapter 1, his focus was on the light of the world, telling people to look at the light of the world. So we've already been given a little bit about John the Baptist, introduced to him a little bit in the prologue, those first 18 verses. He came to testify about the light. Turn to Matthew 11, 11. Matthew 11, 11. These are Jesus' words about John the Baptist. In Matthew eleven eleven, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking, though among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And it's not because he wrote a lot of books. It's not because he was a great theologian in the eyes of society. It was not because he had a lot of trophies and a lot of victories in, in this world or was esteemed by men of this world. It was not because uh, he was wealthy. It's not because he was... Um, anything in the eyes of man. It was because he was called to a mission and he was humble and in humility he carried out that mission. He, got to, he is the only one to have gotten the role to be the one that points people to the Messiah. There were a lot of people who had said the Messiah is coming. A lot of people said that. 
But John the Baptist gets to be the one to say, there he is. This is him. So he had a very unique position. Look at John 3. I'm going to have you turn to several places, but John 3. You see John's humility, John the Baptist's humility in John 3. I may have read this to you a couple of weeks ago, but let me just repeat it here for you because I think it just uh, really stands out. In John 3, verse 26, keep in mind that Jesus, where John was in the desert for 30 years, Jesus has been in Nazareth, excuse me, the desert for 27 years. Jesus has been in Galilee for 27 years. They both start their ministries about the same time. They both begin on the, at about the, the same, just six months apart maybe, some believe. So Jesus has started his ministry, and there, there, there's some consternation between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. We see that in this scene here in John 3. John's disciples are concerned, and they come to John, and they say, verse 26, they're concerned, they come to John and say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, that talking about Jesus, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They're saying, John, we cannot let this guy get more disciples than us. John, we can't let this guy get more attention than you're getting. John, we can't let this guy take away your disciples. And here's how John answers in verse 27. Just something of the reason that this man was the greatest man to live of his time. The humility. Notice in verse 27. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What's he saying? He's saying God's sovereign over the numbers. God's sovereign over the people. Not me. It's God that determines those things. It doesn't matter how many people you have. That's what God is sovereign over. I, I, and he's saying, I am not the Christ. I'm not the target. Notice in verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's in a wedding scene. The bridegroom has the bride. But the friend of the bridegroom or the best man who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Hey, it's not the groom's men that are the focus of the wedding. It's the bride. It's Christ and his church. They're the focus. He must increase, verse 30 says, I must increase decrease. And so I, the reason I say John was a man who understood that he was not his own. It was not about John's reputation or John's kingdom or John cashing in on all his popularity. It was John was not about John. He saw himself as a tool, a road sign. I used that a few weeks ago. He was a road sign to point people to the way. If there's no road, there's no need for a road sign. If there's no way, there's no need for a sign telling you the way. But there is a way, and John is telling him people that this is the way. He pointed people to the way. He was the forerunner. He was the herald. He existed for Christ. Just look at the passage back in John 1.19 just for a moment. And let me show you something. 
He was the announcer. It says in verse 26 of John 1, he says at the end of the verse, but among you stands one whom you do not know, referring to Christ. He's saying, he's here. He's already here. Go down to verse 29. The next day, Jesus is coming to the river Jordan. There he is. There he is. He's here. There he is. And then go down to verse 35. The next day, when the disciples of John the Baptist are standing there, verse 36, and John says, Behold the Lamb, basically saying to them, That is him. Why are you still following me? And then they, they, they heard him speak and they followed Jesus. You see that? He's here. There he is. That's him. Follow him. That's, that's, that's what he existed for. That was John's purpose right there. To point people to Christ. To even point his disciples to Christ. It wasn't about him trying to build his own kingdom. And I tell you, that's true greatness, folks. That is true greatness in the kingdom of God. When we as believers realize that we are not our own, that we're concerned, our only concern is to point people to Christ. That's our only, uh, when we get concerned about building our own little Christian world and Christian kingdom and Christian culture and blocking everybody else out, that is not why we're here. Our mission, our purpose is to point people to the way. And we must realize it's not about us maintaining our reputation, our rights, our whatever. They get in the way of us being used by God to do what John did. That's true greatness. You just see that humility. Well, in chapter 119, if you're there, let me just give you a couple things you need to note about this section. Uh, the events down to verse 37 take place over three days. Three days. If you go all the way into chapter 2, it's one week. Okay, let me show you what I mean by this. Notice verse 19. This would be the first day. This is when Jews are sent to ask him some questions. Verse 19, that would be first day. Then you go down to verse 29. The next day. Then you go down to verse 35, the next day. So you got three days in, 37 ver- in those uh, verses down to verse 37, 19 through 37. You're talking about three days. And then you go down to verse 43. There's the fourth day. The next day, he purposed to go to Galilee, talking about Jesus. And then you go down to chapter 2, verse 1, the third day talking about three days after that fourth day, you're talking about one week. One week. In the ministry and life, life of John the Baptist and the ministry of Christ. That, that's the wedding of Cana in chapter two. Something else I need for you to understand about this section. I told you earlier that Jesus began his ministry in AD 27, about the same time as John the Baptist. He comes, if you follow the gospel accounts, he comes down from Galilee and goes to the River Jordan and he's baptized by John the Baptist. The scenes you see in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 and Mark 1, uh, Jesus 
goes into the water to be baptized, and John says, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, I, I need to be baptized by you to fulfill all, all that's required. Jesus came to live a perfect and holy life, and this was required, and Jesus did that. And then immediately, Mark tells us, immediately after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. Immediately after that, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He spends 40 days in the wilderness going through those temptations that are laid out for us in the Gospels. At the end of the 40 days, John 1, 19, you follow me? The scene you have in verses 31, 32, 33, 34, down there, John is referring back to what happened 40 days ago. Sometimes people will read this and think, well, this is where Jesus got baptized. No, this is not where Jesus got baptized. This is John recounting the event. Notice the language, verse 31. I did not recognize him. I have seen the Spirit descending. I did not recognize him. I myself have seen. That's all past tense. Just want you to understand that. The scene here is 40, the scene here in John 1, 19 following is 40 days after the baptism of Jesus. It's after the time in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. In fact, Jesus is on his way to the river Jordan in verses 19 through 28. The next day, verse 29, Jesus is coming. Behold the Lamb of God. You got the sequence down? And so, Jesus is going to come back to the Jordan after the time in the wilderness. He's already been baptized by John. All that's happened 40 days prior to this. And he comes back. And he will be proclaimed the Lamb of God. And then he will point some of disciples and go to the wedding of Cana and perform his first miracle. In verse 28 of John 1, 19, 20, John 1, 28, John 1, 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's just a, a geographical marker for us. This is not the Bethany that you think of Lazarus and Mary and Martha the, the, the Bethany that's located right next is a kind of a bedroom community to Jerusalem. We're not talking about that Bethany. We are talking about a Bethany that is beyond the Jordan, far to the east of Jerusalem. In fact, about 20 plus miles away in the desert. A very difficult environment out there. No one really knows where this place was. They just know it was beyond the Jordan. So those are just some important things to understand as, as we approach this narrative so you know what's going on in these things. Look at Matthew 3, and I'll just show you some of these things. Matthew 3, verse 4. This is just some other stuff about John the Baptist, but just some things I think give you a full picture 
verse 4 of Matthew 3 says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food with was locust and wild honey. Wild honey obviously makes locusts taste better, I guess, I'm not sure, but the point is, that was his diet. And it's probably a common diet, actually. I'm, not, I'm saying that humorously because you and I wouldn't think of that, but for some it was definitely nutritious. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea. See that? Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. I told you, a 20-mile walk down the mountain. I mean, we're not, we're, if you've ever been to Israel, you know what I'm talking about. It's arduous. It's a terrible uh, path to, to try to get down the mountain. And it's a terrible path to once you get in the desert. So people are physically paying a price to get out there to John. They're leaving Jerusalem and their communities to go to the River Jordan to see John. Extremely, extremely popular. There is expectation. There's kind of a fervor, whipped up fervor in the air. Turn to Luke 3. Luke 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke 3. Verse 15. Verse 15 says, Now while the people were in a state, notice, of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, this is 3.15, as to whether he was the Christ. A lot of messianic expectation. A lot of false messiahs on the scene, by the way. There was just this, is this the Christ? Christos, is this the Messiah? They're waiting, and they've been waiting, and they're tired of waiting, and they, they want him to be there, and they want this to be him, and uh, lots of rumors about who this man is out in the wilderness. And, and you can understand, we're going to see a delegation in verse 19 of, Luke, of John 1. A delegation is sent to John the Baptist. You can see why the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees are so concerned. He's doing something that's not in Jerusalem. He's doing something that we didn't do in our school, that he can go to our schools to do this stuff. They're concerned, is this just another false Messiah on the scene like we've seen happen in the past? Is this somebody else that's come along to lead the people astray? So there is legitimacy in what they are asking of John. They are legitimate in their concern for what John is doing. But they too are false teachers. And so these rumors are everywhere. So let me get to the passage. Back to John. John 1, 19. We'll see how far we can get this morning. 1, 19. There are two questions that are asked of John in verses, the first day. The first day being verses 19 through 28. Two questions are being asked here. Two questions. And you see it in verse 19. Who are you? Who are you? And then the next question, and, there, and there's some answers given. And then the next question, verse 25, why are you baptizing? You see that? Why then are you baptizing? <clears throat> so you can break down 19 through 28, first day, 
Jesus is not here at this point. Be there the next day. Jesus is on his way here. But now it's just this delegation coming to John the Baptist, asking him two questions. Who are you and why are you baptizing? And John gives an answer to both. Let's look at this. 119. This is the testimony of John. We talked about that. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And then pointed out to you, this is, what, is, what are you about and who are you? The Jews, understand that term, the Jews is not speaking of racially, uh, in a racial context or an ethnic context, but more in a, the Jews. They were basically antagonistic, this group of Jews. We're talking about a term that's used 70 times in the book of John to refer to those who were against Jesus, the Jews. Primarily, we're talking about the Jewish leaders, Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were the, the majority. The Sadducees were the religious liberals. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection or, or miracles or any of those kinds of things. The Sadducees were in control of the uh, temple area. They were the wealthier. They were the ones who were more involved with the politics and relating to the Romans. And then you have the Pharisees. They're also mentioned down in verse... Uh, 24, they're also part of this party. The Pharisees would be your more religious conservatives. They were the ones who were very particular about keeping the letter of the law. They were very concerned about uh, the, keeping the Old Testament and preserving the things of the Old Testament and the rituals and the traditions that they had come up with. Uh, neither of these groups are believers. Some of them do become believers, but we would not say they were believers. They just upheld a religious system that had become very uh, works-oriented. And so we see in this verse that the Jews send this delegation from the temple, priests and Levites are mentioned. Priests would be the ones who would come with the, in, uh, with the intention to ask the questions they were the ones who would be more concerned about how he fits into the system of Judaism. The Levites would be more your um, Levites would be more in a position of serving the priest. They would be more in a position of uh, like a security team too. Basically, they would be ones who would keep riots from breaking out. Uh, they would be ones who protected the priest. Uh, that would be their role. They came from Jerusalem, we're told here. Uh, we're told that they asked this question, probably the priest asked this question, who are you? And just keep in mind that loaded in that question, John realizes what they're asking. You can tell that by, their, by his response. But they're really asking and wanting to know, are you the Messiah? That's what they really want to know. That's indicated by how John responds. Because, like I said, the messianic fervor, the anticipation was everywhere. And the rumors were that this was the Messiah, John the Baptist. 
Now, they weren't looking for the Messiah as far as being a Savior. Understand that. The Jews in Jesus' day did not want a Savior. They wanted a, a, a military Messiah. They wanted somebody to crush Rome. They wanted somebody that would conquer Rome, Romans. They didn't want a Savior. They didn't want a lamb. They wanted a king. And they had reason to think that way and believe that way because that's what the Old Testament promised, a king. They just missed it because they did not understand the first coming and the second coming. Are you, who are you? Loaded in that and implied in that is, are you the Messiah? John gets right to the point, verse 20, and he denies it. And he says to them, and it's worded really interesting way that it's worded here. He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed. Now, I think you could say a couple things there. Uh, There's a level of tension, maybe. How could you ask me that question type of thought, maybe? And the reason he says it this way, I am because he makes a big deal about he's not the Messiah. Or it could be simply that translated from the Greek to the English, this is what you get. So, not exactly sure why we get wording like this, but the emphasis is there. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. So, I'm sure when they heard him say that, they're relieved. So, we're not dealing with another messianic nutcase here. You know, this guy doesn't claim to be the Messiah. So there's some relief, and they stand back and take a breath. But they decide to get more specific, and they continue with their questioning, and they proceed to other significant figures who would precede the Messiah. Verse 21, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Why would they ask about Elijah, uh, the Old Testament prophet Elijah? The reason is because at the end of the book of Malachi, Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there's anticipation that before the Messiah comes, on the day of the Lord, understand that, the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah will come back. The, not a figure, not an not a Elijah-like person, but really Elijah is going to come back. And they're asking, are you that guy? Are you Elijah? Are you the opening act for the coming of the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Come back. John says, I am, verse uh, 21, he said, I am not. This has caused confusion for people at times because it seems that Jesus in Matthew 11 and Matthew 17 is saying that John the Baptist was Elijah. Who is right? Is John the Baptist right that he's not? Or is Jesus right that he is? That has caused confusion. I'll give you those references. I I don't have time to go and develop them completely this morning for you. But in Matthew 17, 10, Jesus says that he is Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, understand this, and remember this, I read it to you earlier, when the angel appears to Zacharias, he says, your son is going to be, is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
It's not going to be a reincarnated Elijah. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Matthew eleven fourteen is the best explanation I can, can give you for the con- confusion that sometimes surrounds this question. Jesus says in Matthew eleven fourteen, if you were willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. What does Jesus mean by that? In that passage, Jesus is talking about all the opposition the prophets have faced. And basically, he is giving a very hypothetical situation that says, had you as a nation been willing to accept your Messiah, then John the Baptist would have been Elijah, not reincarnate, but the real Elijah would have come and your king would have come. He is talking about an impossible situation. He's talking about a situation that was not the divine plan of God, but it was necessary for a lamb to come first and an Elijah-like figure to come, but not Elijah himself, because that's going to happen, Revelation 11, that's going to happen before Christ comes at his second coming. I have no idea if I've cleared up anything for you at all in what I've just said, but the point is, we cannot say John the Baptist is Elijah reincarnate. He's not. He's not. Um, He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, in a few moments when John the Baptist says who he is, he's not even going to quote Malachi 3. Excuse me, Malachi 4. He's going to quote someplace else. I came to be a forerunner for the first coming. Elijah-like, yes. But not Elijah. That's the second coming. That's the day of the Lord coming. Malachi 4.5. Anyway, let's move to the next point here. Uh, so that's just a confusion that sometimes people have. Next, he asked about a prophet. You see that in verse, uh, are you the prophet? The prophet is referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where, where Moses says, God, is going, God, God through Moses says, I'm going to send a prophet like me, like Moses. Um, and some Jews believe that was going to be the Messiah, other Jews thought it was going to be somebody else, a forerunner as well. Regardless of where you want to get, uh, Peter says it's the prophet refers to Christ. Moses was prophesying about the coming of Christ. So that's just another reference to Christ. But some Jews did think we're talking about somebody else distant from Christ. But the point I'm making here, and I think John is making here, is I'm not that person either. I'm not either of those Old Testament personalities that everybody is talking about. Then they said to him, who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. We have to, we've been sent here to find out who you are. We've been sent here to find out what, what you are, where you came from, some, some information about you. You know, John could have said, well, I was born to a priest. I've got credentials in Jerusalem. Uh, You know, I have lived out here in this desert for a long time. He doesn't talk about himself at all. He gives nothing of, of, of his humanity at all. He simply says in verse 23, I'm a voice. See that? I'm just a voice. I'm not John, son of Zacharias, priest and served in the temple and da 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 I am a voice. 
of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Uh, God, God, God is coming to Jerusalem. God is coming to Israel. And I'm the voice, I'm the voice that has been sent as a forerunner, has been sent as the advanced man, been sent to tell you to get ready for him. I'm the one that has been sent to tell you to notice how he says this, make straight the way of the Lord. When someone would announce a king coming to town, make the path straight for him. Go out there and fix the potholes in the road. Go out there and tear down all the obstacles. Go and get rid of all the things that will keep the king from coming. Because that's what, I'm, that's what my role is. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice. And I think as, as you think about this even more, you can, we had time, we'd look at it, we probably will next week. But basically, he's, in a spiritual sense, he's saying, let there be a highway to your heart to receive the Messiah. That's what he's saying. Get your heart ready for the Messiah. It's not that he needs, he needs a, the highways fixed, it's that he needs the highway to your heart fixed. And that's why his message is one of Repent. And then go through this little ritual of baptism to show that you're serious about your repentance. That's what he's calling them to. But I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm a herald. I'm just an announcer. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, my name, there's no name associated with, uh, like you have Elijah in Malachi 4, but in this p- passage from Isaiah that John the Baptist is quoting from there in verse uh, 23, there's no name there, just a voice. I'm just a voice. And then they said I'd been sent from the Pharisees. We've always talked about that verse. Go down to verse 25, but they still are insistent. They ask him, verse 25 of, 119, of, of John 1, they ask him, why then are you baptizing? If you, don't have, if you don't have the credentials to be doing this, why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing? That's the second question. The who, who are you? You're a voice. Okay, okay, we know who you're not. We, you're, and you say you're a voice. But why then are you baptizing if you don't have the credentials to be doing this? Listen, baptism was not foreign to the Jews. They had seen baptisms before. It meant to immerse in something. It meant to immerse all the way in something. Baptism, proselyte baptism, sort of developed over the intertestamental period for Gentiles who wanted to convert to to uh, Judaism, they would immerse themselves into water, a purification to cleanse themselves. Jews viewed them as dogs. Jews viewed them as dirty. And this, they went through this ritual and they noticed they would do it themselves. Nobody did it to them. They would do it themselves publicly, yes, but they would do it themselves to be cleansed. And so they understood, and there were purification things that Jews would go through, so they understood baptism in that sense. So this wasn't a foreign thought to them. The point was, why are you, John, why are you baptizing and doing this to Jews? Jews who are the covenant people, why are you baptizing them? 
Why are you, you doing it? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, and if you're not the prophet, if you don't have the credentials of these men, why are you doing it? Who gives you the authority to do this? Why are you baptizing? And basically, I think this is the message. You've got to become like a Gentile. <laughs> You've got to see yourself like a Gentile. You've got to see yourself as you're no better than the Gentiles. You've got to repent, because he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to to make their highways, the highway to their heart, ready for the Messiah. The pathway to your heart is repentance. And so he calls them to that. Well, John does give an answer to this question, but you'll have to come back next week to hear it because I am out of time. But he gives an answer. It's an interesting answer. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. You guys make too much of a deal out of the ritual of baptism. That's just to get you out here. We'll see that next week. Father, thank you. Thank you, God. I pray we'd be challenged by this narrative. I pray we'd be challenged by this narrative, Father, to ask ourselves, are we road signs? Are we pointing people to Christ as John the Baptist did? Or are we too caught up in ourselves to even be concerned for others who are lost? and who need the Savior, who need to be called to repentance. God, I pray we'd have the boldness of this John the Baptist, that we would see his example to us as the people of God, people who are called by you to not, be our, to not live for ourselves, but to live for you. We love you and thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.